0: Hey there, welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Tim Voth and I'm the Family Life Pastor here at FSBC. This week, Pastor Rod Heppel speaks about one of the Ten Commandments you shall not murder in our Law for Life sermon series. If you'd like to learn more about our church, check out SardisFellowship.com. Thanks. I'd like to take us into our sermon series where we've been going through the Law for Life as it relates to the Ten Commandments of God. And you know that we've kind of had a play on words with this whole Law for Life bit. Uh, well, today really has a play on words because um, the topic we're dealing with is the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder, which, of course, the law for life should protect life and bring life. Um, all of the other commandments that we've been working through so far, if you haven't caught them and you want to, you can just go to our podcast or to the archive sermons and listen to them as well. This one we would think should be an easy one to simply say, yeah, I get it. You shall not murder. It should be uh, a short sermon. But, you know, we do have questions about this. Uh, we have lots of questions, actually. I was thinking about that this week. What about accidentally killing someone? Is that murder? What if it's done in self-defense? What if, What about suicide? Or maid? Or abortion? What about in war times? What about capital punishment? What about killing animals? So you can see that we have lots of these questions that surround this command that should be so straightforward, you shall not murder. We do have lots of questions. In fact, by me asking those kinds of questions, probably piqued your interest on one or two of them where you would like to explore that further and you'd probably like me to do so today. But to be honest, I'm going to disappoint you because you know there's no way that in one short sermon you're able to adequately deal with a lot of those complex questions. So what we will be exploring today are two things around this command. The first is, what is the intent of the command that God gave to the nation of Israel? So what is the essence of this, really? And then secondly, how do the words of Jesus in the New Testament, when he speaks about anger, relate to murder? And I put those verses there for you in Matthew 5, uh, 21-22, in particular 22, where it seems like he's equating anger to murder. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So we want to look at that a little bit more closely. What is the relationship between murder and anger? First of all, the sixth commandment is found in Exodus chapter 13, and it simply says, you shall not murder. It's a very short verse, um, which in all the modern translations, it says it like that. But if you were to have the King James Version as your Bible, you would notice that it actually says, thou shalt not kill. And you might wonder, well, why is there this variation between the King James Version, and some of the older versions, to the newer ones, because all of the newer versions, including the New King James Version, translate it like this, you shall not murder. They use the word murder. Uh, Hundreds of years ago, when the English language, um, uh, it used to mean that the word kill and murder were synonymous, and and so some of those older versions carried that idea of kill, because it it meant murder, and now they've just made that change. In fact, the Greek is very, uh, pardon me, the Hebrew is very clear on the fact that what is intended is murder and not to kill. And we're like, well, aren't they the same thing? No, not really. I mean, murder is very specific to a type of killing. Killing is a little more broad. You can have self-defense in there. You can have uh, a person who accidentally kills someone. So you might say a person was accidentally killed on the job site. You wouldn't say they were murdered on the job site. Um, We would use the word uh, for kill, like I killed a mosquito. I mean, maybe you could use slang and say, I murdered a mosquito. But really, we we use it in a different way from what we mean when we use the word murder. Murder means one thing. It is the illegal or immoral taking of human life. And so that's what we have in mind when we talk about murder, where killing has a broader context. So that's why the newer versions um, go with the word murder and not to kill. That was the original intent. So with that little side note, let's look at the main point here. Let's start with this intent of the command of God by looking at, well, what are we talking about? We've already kind of alluded to what murder is distinguishing from killing, but let's take a look at how the dictionaries define it. The Cambridge Dictionary says it's the crime of intentionally killing a person. And the Oxford Dictionary says almost verbatim the same thing, the crime of killing somebody deliberately, so intentional and deliberate. And then Merriam-Webster fleshes it out a little bit more says the crime of unlawfully killing a person, especially with malice aforethought. So premeditated. So those are the key words that I see here that I've kind of highlighted for you. The intentionality of it, the premeditatedness of it, the deliberateness of it. It's an unlawful killing, which means there is lawful killing, uh, which kind of makes us stop and think about that. But Lawful killing would be self-defense and lawful killing would be an officer who is protecting people from a person who pulls out a gun or some kind of, he's armed and he's going to hurt someone else or kill someone else and that officer has the right to take that person's life and that's a lawful killing because they're protecting innocent people. And then there's this added part of malice uh, which relates to an intention to harm the person and, and obviously to harm them in the worst case possible which is to take their life. So we see intentionality, we see premeditatedness, we see malice. In our country, this would be termed first-degree murder. Our Canadian law distinguishes between three types of homicides, of killings, the taking of human life. One is a justifiable um, homicide, which is self-defense, that's an example. Accidental, in that it wasn't intended to be, like the job site analogy. But the third one is the one where we get into... Um, murder. It's homicide that is culpable. And so they call it that. Culpable homicide. And there's three categories to this. Uh, I've put them up there for you to see. First degree murder, which is the one that we have in mind here, where a person, you know, has planned and deliberated over killing another person. A sentence in Canada for first degree murder carries an automatic life sentence with no possibility of parole for 25 years. That is our highest level um, of sentencing for a person who commits uh, first degree murder in Canada. Um, They can be given multiple life sentences. The second degree murder category is slightly different because it says generally a deliberate killing that occurs without planning. So this second degree murder is not the same as first degree murder because of the fact that there wasn't the premeditatedness of it. But it still was murder and for that you get a minimum sentence of life in prison with no parole for 10 years. So the life in prison sentence is 25, but no chance of parole for a minimum of 10, and you may not get parole until the full 25. The third category is manslaughter. So this is the the least um, punitive of the three. Uh, It's a homicide committed without intent, although there may have been an intention to cause harm. So a person is angry, and they're trying to get maybe even with someone else, but it goes too far. It goes wrong. Uh, they hit them and kill them. And that would be termed manslaughter because the intention wasn't to kill. Now, as a kid growing up, I was always a little bit confused by the irony of the way in which the language around these these three categories, because manslaughter sounds absolutely horrific. I don't know what image comes to your mind, um, but it's the one that's the least uh, punitive. But I want you to see that in these categories, um, They're trying to equate the punishment with the level of intention of what? The level of intention of the human heart. That the the basis for the punishment is around the premeditativeness and the intent of the heart. And that's exactly what we see in the Bible too. When it's trying to help people understand what the intention of this law is, it has to do with the heart. There are certain exceptions that are made when it's not the worst case scenario of that premeditated intention to take the life of another person. And, you know, Joel mentioned last week that there's the things called case laws. He said there's the ten words, which are the ten commandments. And then he said following that, so in Exodus 20 you have the ten commandments. But then in Exodus 21 and onward, you get all these case samples of life scenarios of how you would take the law and apply it. Uh, And last week he was looking at honoring your mother and father and how you might apply that, what that would look like. Today we're looking at this one. And so here's a couple of examples in Exodus of how they would take a case law and understand how to take the, the command, not to kill, not to murder, to take it and then to apply it in life. So it says anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, that's an interesting thought they, the person who's done the killing, are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. So the person who plans and premeditates and then deliberately follows through and kills another person is to be put to death. So we see here that there is an exception to the command based on the human heart. If the killing is not done with that intentionality, they're to flee to a designated place that God has told Israel to set up these various uh, places spread out throughout Israel, designated cities of refuge where a person could flee to and what? Stand trial. They would stand before a court or a, a group of people who would be like a magistrate and be able to make a fair judgment on whether or not this person um, was, was deliberate in their killing or if it was accidental and therefore there would be a, a fairness factor. And so it's kind of like the early uh, judicial system you might say for Israel. So here's another case law that helps us understand the command. So the command is you shall not murder. Okay, always, forever, in what situations, what does it look like? That's what we're, we're learning here. Exodus 22 says, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow. So a thief breaks in and someone else kills him by a fatal blow. Uh, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Okay, so the distinguishing factor here is darkness and light. So, under the cover of darkness, an intruder comes into your home, you don't know if they're there to kill you or just to, you know, steal something, and you, you strike them out of a, a sense of trying to defend yourself, and for that reason you're not guilty because it's under the cover of dark, you don't know the intention of the person. If it's in daylight, you have other options of how you might defend yourself, knowing that the person isn't armed, maybe they're just grabbing something and trying to run, so it's a different scenario. If you take their life in daylight, then you are guilty, uh, because it, it would show your intention to kill them, rather than to just defend yourself. So what we're seeing here is that you have the law, and then you have the ways in which that law was applied to the various forms of killing that really reflect the same way in which we evaluate here in our North American um, context as well. But the thing that I really want you to pick up on, I want you to pick up on how everything by way of determining a proper judgment on the level of punishment that you're going to receive for killing is based upon the human heart, is based upon the intention and the premeditativeness of it. And we're going to come back to this in just a little bit, so hold that thought. But that's really important. Murder is the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another, and especially when it's done with malice. That's the intention of what God is trying to prevent his people from practicing. It shouldn't be too hard for us to understand how serious this crime is, and I don't think that you have to be a Christian to understand how serious this crime is. But I think it's good for us to look at the Bible and kind of see the basis of connecting the dots between why human life is so important in the eyes of God. So let's just take a moment and back it up and do a little bit of kind of um, theology 101 here on being a human and um, obeying this command and honoring God and how that connects. So in Genesis 1.27... Uh, In the account of the creation of humanity, it says that God created mankind. That means humanity, male and female, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So what we deduce from this one verse alone is that God is the creator of humans. And if he's the creator, then we belong to him. It's this principle of what we call creator-owner. If a person creates something, they own it. Until they give over the rights to someone else, it's theirs. And the creator-owner principle kind of works like this. The creator is the one who has the right to say how it should work and how it should function, uh, because they, they made it. So if God is our creator and we are the people, then we don't have the right to say how this works. We have to obey our creator, because he's the one who gives the commands on how this works, because it's his idea. And so when he says that you are not to take the life of another person, that's part of his plan of how all of creation should function and work together. The second thing we see from this verse alone, the first being that God creates us, the second being is that how he created us. Uh, He created us in his image, it says. Maybe you've heard of this term, the Imago Dei, and it's this whole idea that there's something distinct and unique about the human life from the rest of creation life. It, this, this idea of Imago Dei captures the specialness of the relationship that we have with God. That we somehow reflect God a little more closely than all the rest of creation. Genesis 2 is highlighting this as well when it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. A living being. So when you combine these two verses together, you kind of get a one, two, three here. God made us. He made us in his image, and he made us to be living beings. There's something there that, again, is distinct from the rest of creation. There's just something there that's trying to put an emphasis on the fact that we we have a soul, as the rest of the Bible goes on to help us understand. We are made in the image of God in that he has made us to live eternally. And he's made us to live eternally with him, except for the fact that sin separates us from him. Therefore, in God's eyes, human life is more precious than anything else and anything else in his entire creation because we bear his image so that's kind of a you know a a 101 understanding of why life is precious and why we need to look at this very closely and take seriously how we see um, ourselves in relationship to one another as it has to do with killing and murder Here's another example that highlights the seriousness of murder in God's eyes. Now, the example I'm about to give you predates Moses in the giving of the Ten Commandments. So this is, you know, back up the clock. It's Noah. It's the time of the flood. It's just after the flood. And uh, I'm using this example because um, it shows very clearly how we are to reflect the image of God and, and honor him by, by um well, not killing one another, and quite frankly, by actually loving and appreciating one another. It seems like the wickedness of humanity had reached the point where that value was completely lost, and people were killing and murdering one another, and every inclination of the heart, it says, was wicked. And so God comes along after the flood, and he says to Noah and his family, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. This was symbolic of the fact that... um, the blood was what allowed a person to live, right? If you took the blood, well, you're, you're taking away their very life. And they only get one. So um, it's symbolic of how serious it is to take the life of another person. He goes on to say, and, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. Your lifeblood being human. I will demand an accounting from every animal. Meaning that even animals are going to be held accountable. If an animal kills a human, that animal was to be killed. And from each human being, I will demand an accounting for life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Okay, now this is a a sobering thought. And, of course, I'm not wanting to get into the whole discussion about, well, capital punishment, and should we be practicing it today, and is the judicial system fair, and all that kind of stuff. What I want us to see here is how God values human life. That that he does demand an accounting from the one who kills another person, and obviously killing them with the intent to harm, with the premeditated and predeterminedness to kill that person, first-degree murder, in other words, God is saying that they will be held account for that. So to summarize this first point about what is the intention of the Sixth Commandment, I think what's clear is God's intention for this law was to protect human life from the illegal or immoral taking of it by another human being. And all of this was based on the nature of our relationship to God in the fact that he's created us to reflect him and his character And his character is not to kill us. His character is to love us. His character was to breathe into us this gift of life. And therefore it should be protected in every aspect. And yet we know that in the world that we live in today, murder of all kinds take place. Both premeditated with the intention to harm as well as that other category where it's out of a fit of rage and anger and a moment of irresponsible action that another person's life was taken. All of these kinds of killings and horribleness that take place also whether out of the womb or in the womb that the life that god has made is is intended to be protected from conception all the way through to death but one day before god's throne there will be proper judgment you see we live in a world where there's a lot of different kinds of injustices that take place our world does not always reflect the values of god i say not always because there are certain times it does but there is a lot of the time it does not And we see how our broader culture views issues of sanctity of life much different from a moral standpoint than what we understand from God and his word. But I want us to understand that there is a day of judgment that is coming. We all stand before God and it's only by the blood of Christ that's applied to our own lives that we will stand before God. God's intention for the nation of Israel was to understand the preciousness of life. He wanted the people of God to be different from the people around them, that human life would not be something to be taken so casually, but rather it would be valued because each person bore the image of God and each person would respect God by respecting one another. So that's the first point that I wanted to make, and I now want to look at the second point because the words of Jesus are really challenging as it relates to anger and murder and what this relationship is. So let's take a look at the words of Jesus that are found in Matthew chapter 5. What does he have in mind here? And how is it that he seems to equate anger with murder? Because we sure wouldn't. Those are night and day different, right? Let's take a look. So in Matthew 5, it says this, starting in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anybody who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Then Jesus goes on to give an example of how this plays out. And it's in an example of a context of worship. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Okay, now this something against you must be understood not just as a minor infraction, but there has been... Something clearly outstanding between you and this other person where there's been a heatedness to it. There's been words that have been spoken. There's an aggressiveness to it. There's anger. There's hatred. There's all of that that's tied up into this. Okay, It's a serious offense. Jesus says in verse 24, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. All right. Now there is a lot in here to unpack. Uh, But what I want us to do is kind of catch the main point that I believe that Jesus is making which simply um, is, to, um, is to put anger that is in the heart equated to murder. Because if we don't understand what God's ultimate plan is for us, then we don't understand how those two are equated. Because we can say, well, I'm an angry person. I'm never going to murder anyone. It's just fine. It's just something I let brew in my heart. It's like, well, there is a potential you could be wrong and one day act out of your anger and kill someone. But I think the deeper point that Jesus is making by this is to say, you do not understand my kingdom. You do not understand the intention of God when he said, I have made humanity in my image, male and female. Have I created them to reflect me in my glory? It did not include being angry towards one another. It did not include hating one another. It included the exact opposite of that. And if we are going to call ourselves the children of God, then that needs to be reflected in our hearts. So this is the main point that seems to be that Jesus is driving at. That he wants them to understand, and, and they're missing it. Now, we've already talked about the fact that the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees of Jesus' day tended to miss the deeper reality of these laws, right? We talked about that a fair bit. Um, the Pharisees took it to the narrowest and most technical uh, extent, and they could check that box, but Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 your hearts are wrong, and that's what he's doing again here. You're still violating the command of God. Even if you're not picking up that knife and killing that person, by your hatred and your anger towards them, you are still violating this commandment, the command of God. So the true intention of the law, that you shall not murder, was not to just prevent people from killing each other, but was to actually you know, help highlight the obvious that you're actually supposed to love one another. It's not good enough to simply not kill a person, but you shouldn't be angry with them. You shouldn't have hatred in your heart. You shouldn't harbor this inside of you. Long before the action ever happens, this shouldn't be there. Before God, anger in the heart is the same as murder with your hands. That's, in essence, what Jesus is saying, that there is a moral equation that takes place before God that we deem differently, that in our humanness we think we are okay to hold that person with such hatred, while still at the same time thinking we're right with God. And the point that Jesus is making here is, no, 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 no. There's, there's something wrong here. This is not righteous anger that is referenced in other places in the Bible. Righteous anger is against sin. This is unrighteous anger towards a person. It, it starts with people thinking ill of the other person. Uh, you might have seen this phrase uh, here about raka. And we go, well, what, what does that mean, you know? Uh, don't um, use this phrase. It means that they're worthless um, or they're an imbecile. Um, It it has the same point almost as you fool, which has a little more of a a harsher tone, really, to be like you're a wicked, rebellious person and um, you're absolutely horrible beyond any worth. So they kind of both land in the same place, which is this. They devalue human life. The very human life that God has said, you bear my image, We come along as humans by our hatred and anger towards one another, and we devalue the person to the place where we use language. We might say, God, you may value this person, but I don't. They are worthless. So Jesus is kind of forcing the people to think more deeply. He's forcing them to understand that murder happens when we view people with this devalued anger towards them. The very pinnacle of God's creation has been reduced to nothing. And out of that kind of mentality comes this anger and hatred that leads to things like murder. And so on the one hand, you're guilty of it already, but um, you haven't carried it out yet. And for people who think, yeah, I would never do that, you don't know. Anger is this thing that makes a fool of us. We do not know what we do in our anger. We do not know what we look like in our anger. Have you ever had someone... Hold up a mirror to you and let you know what you look like when you're angry. I guarantee you, you view yourself way different in your anger than how other people view you in your anger. And I know that's been my experience when people have taken the time to uh, help me understand what that looked like. Warren Wiersbe said that when we hate others, it's a sign that we are not walking in the light And we don't have God's love in our hearts. I believe that's the intention that Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to open their eyes and understand. If anger's in your heart, it's symbolic of the fact that you're not walking in the light. You're not in right relationship with God. You've committed murder. And so it's, it's shocking language that Jesus is using to try to wake people up to the reality of what it should be, not just a technicality where we walk around all pious and think we're so good that we haven't killed someone. What's going on in our hearts? We can't separate our relationship with God from our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the essence of it. We talk about this a lot in, in church life. Um, we, we quote this verse. I mean, it's, it's so clear. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's what Jesus is telling us. And that's what Jesus is willing to die for. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. And so it's not good enough just to say, I haven't killed someone. By our anger, we've murdered one another. They're polar opposites. And that's what Jesus is calling us to consider. You know, today is a communion Sunday. And it's really interesting that we're having this conversation. I didn't plan this out that today we'd be talking about murder. And Jesus was murdered. But also that this point is being made at this table. These elements are a visible reminder that the juice representing the blood of Christ and the bread representing the body of Christ, that, that represents Christ's life given for us. And the idea is that through the life of Christ, we are now made right with God. That God looks at Jesus and by our faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we're placed into his family. But it doesn't stop there. So it's not just kind of like what happens between me and God. This represents what happens also between me and you. That when we gather around Christ, our Lord, and we remember what he's done for us, that's the same expression of forgiveness and love that we now express to one another. And so the whole point of the communion table is to remind us of what God has done, to look upward, to think about that grace, and then ask ourselves... If I'm holding something against my brother or sister, if there's hatred in my heart towards them, if there's anger in my heart towards them, to what degree am I understanding God's grace towards forgiving me? I think only to the degree that I'm willing now to forgive someone else. That would be an indicator of that. And this table forces us to consider what it means to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ when there's offense against them. Jesus says in verse 24, Leave Your gift, your offering um, at the altar, your expression of worship, your song, whatever it is. Whatever it is that you're bringing by way of an act of worship before God, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and bring your offering to God. Why? Because your offering will be wasted if you don't. There is no sense of worship to God, an offering pleasing and acceptable to him, while at the same time harboring bitterness and hatred and anger in our hearts towards our brother sister in Christ that's the point Jesus is making an unforgiving spirit hinders worship and it destroys our fellowship with God and with God's people so this is uh you know a pretty quick overview of those words of Jesus that you could really dig down on because there's a lot in there but I just want us to kind of capture the essence of this this main point that Jesus is challenging us with and to uh, make sure we're judging our own motive of heart uh, to make sure that we're right uh, before God and before one another. Um, I think that we need to take this seriously, and we are as guilty as the Pharisees who get, let ourselves off in a technicality while not taking the words of Jesus seriously to consider this. And so I'm hoping that in our communion service today, you're going to be able to reflect on that. But before we get to the communion part, I want us to look at um, a story in the Bible, an example of murder. I know, nice topic, right? Um, I want us to look at the anger, the premeditated, and the intent of the heart, and how it plays out in just one example that is given in Scripture. There are lots of examples to choose from in the Bible that you could use on murder. There's Moses who murdered an Egyptian out of anger. There's David who premeditated the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, just to try to conceal his sin, their sin. There's Jezebel who schemed a murder plan to kill Naboth so that her husband Ahab could get his vineyard. And there's the Apostle Paul who endorsed the killing of Stephen in the New Testament. And the list goes on. There's lots of examples. In fact, when our son Ryan was much younger, about 12 years old, we were doing our read the Bible after dinner and working our way through the Old Testament. He says one night, he goes, you know... Mom and Dad, if the Bible was a movie, you wouldn't let me watch it. <laughs> and it's true. And there, none of us should watch the Bible. And so we might look at that and think, well, why is the Bible so bad? Well, it's not that the Bible's so bad, it's that the Bible's so honest. The Bible's so honest about humanity. The Bible's so honest about what goes on inside our hearts and works its way out in all of these different ways horrible ways. And let's face it, it's not just the stories that are recorded for us in the scriptures that are so horrible. It's us as well. Those stories are our stories. And so the one I've chosen to look at is the first example of brotherly love uh, between Cain and Abel, where Cain kills his brother Abel. Of course, I'm using sarcasm when I say brotherly love. Genesis 4, let's read this story together and kind of look at some of the elements that are in here that we've already been talking about. Adam made love to his wife Eve. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. That's what Cain means. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks. He was a shepherd. And Cain worked the soil. He's a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the first It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground. Uh and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So you've heard of Mrs. Peacock in the library with a candlestick. Well, this is Mr. Cain out in the field with a club, or maybe his bare hands, or maybe something else. But I want you to notice a few points here. Um, The first thing is that Cain's offering was not accepted by God, and we wonder about that. We wonder, there's lots of discussion around, was it what was actually brought by Abel and brought by Cain? So Cain brings, um, you know, vegetable products, and Abel brings an animal. Uh, Abel's was a higher level of sacrifice in Cain's, or, um, you know, the blood that was shed by the animal was the accurate representation of what was needed to cover the sins of of humans. That's definitely going to come later on. Um, as the law is given. But also later on, you're going to see that there were grain offerings and there were vegetable, fruit, grain type offerings that were given. It wasn't always the sacrifice of the blood, even though that is central. Um, It could be that, but it it more likely is reflective of what's going on in Cain's heart. Um, That God is challenging him, and in particular here in verse 7, if you do what is right. Well, again, what does the right mean? It, It could be bring the right gift, but For God, it's always been an issue of the heart, too. What was going on in Cain's heart that God was trying to help him see more clearly? That maybe his life wasn't right with the Lord in bringing his offering. Maybe there's pride. I don't know. We don't know. There's a lot of guesswork here. But there's something going on in Cain's heart that isn't right before God. And God is holding up a mirror to Cain, but he's also helping Cain. He's giving him a way forward. He's warning him to do what is right while he can do it. And so he gives this little warning here. Sin is crouching at your door. Um, Sin is crouching at the door of your life and it's ready to pounce. You better be careful. You know, that's exactly what anger and hatred and bitterness in the heart is. It's sin that we have harbored in our heart and it's ready to take the next step. It's ready to burst out of us. It's ready to pounce. It's ready to destroy. We must rule over it. We must deal with it. So God gives Cain a heads-up warning, but Cain does not heed God's warning. No, Cain becomes angry, and then he turns his angry anger towards the one that he can take it out on, the one he's jealous about, because Abel's offering was accepted by God. So he turns his anger towards God. His unchecked anger is about ready to explode. Now, it's interesting to ponder a little bit here about, well, how much time frame went on here? Was it an immediate thing where Cain was disappointed and frustrated and angry, and then he goes and plots this thing with his brother? Or how much time passed where he was pondering in his mind this plan? What will I do? I know. I'm going to get even. I'm going to hurt him the way I've been hurt, this kind of thing, right? Did it percolate in his heart and mind? Probably. He probably murdered his brother Abel many times before he actually carried it out. So he makes a plan. It's premeditated. It's deliberate. He misleads his brother um, Abel and says, come out to the field with me. You know, Abel was probably very excited to go with his older brother to work with him in his field or to help him with something. Whatever it was, Cain got him there. It was deception. It was absolutely intentional what he was going to do. But the blood of his brother cried out to God. That just simply means that God knows everything. God sees everything. There's no way that, Cain, you can't hide this from God. Why are you even trying to hide it from God? And when questioned, he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Come on. Cain is living a life of deception. And so can we. We can allow anger. We can allow bitterness. We can allow hatred to exist in our heart. And somehow we think that it's hidden from God. So we find ourselves right here in the middle of this command. Um, We're checking off boxes that we're all right. We've never murdered anyone. And yet we're living like this in our hearts. That's very possible. Just like a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about not lying. And we talked about the context of the court. Um, we said that probably not many people are going to stand in court and actually f- give a false testimony against the neighbor. The likelihood of that's pretty slim. But the likelihood of lying in everyday conversation is pretty high. And, and that's where we went a couple of weeks ago. And I think what we're seeing here, too, is that Jesus is trying to say, just like you know, giving false testimony isn't just in court, it's in everyday life. So it is here that we see that the anger of our heart is murderous. That the anger of our heart is wrong. That the anger of our heart happens every day. Oh, we may never murder in our entire lifetime, but to be angry with someone else and to basically devalue them before God the way we've been warned by Jesus, that can really happen. So this sixth commandment is about harboring anger in our hearts toward our brother and sister in Christ. And as we come to this communion table, it does cause us to stop and to pause and reflect on what Jesus has asked of us. That if we've been forgiven by him before God we've been forgiven by God because of what Jesus has done for us then that's the same level of forgiveness we are to extend to our brothers and sisters and if there is anger in our hearts if there is anger in your heart today this is an opportunity just to pause and to bring it before God and to make things right it is possible you need to make right with another person as we've been warned by Jesus leave your offering here don't participate go make right first But, you know, there's another level of forgiveness and releasing of anger and bitterness and hatred is when we realize afresh what Christ has done for us, that we release that person that we've had in our heart and mind. It could even only be a one-way thing where we're the ones that are harboring it. They don't even know. It's us, not them. That can be released before God in a moment. In the in-person service on Sunday, August the 7th, our worship team uh, is leading us through a song by Phil Wickham, called Hymn of Heaven. If you wanna go to YouTube and type in Phil Wickham, Hymn of Heaven, you will hear the same song that we're singing on a Sunday morning, August 7th. And the reason why I bring this up is, the song is being sung live as an opportunity for people in person to consider and reflect this message today before they participate with the elements of communion. And the reason why I chose the song is, it's one that lyrically and the message, the music, the melody, All of the passion that is displayed, uh, if you go to the YouTube video watch it, you will see the passion that is displayed by the person who's singing it. And somehow it resonated with my heart that God has done something for us, that he calls us to make sure that we're doing for others. Um, I invite you, before participating in this communion, to spend some time in reflection. Whether you listen to the song or not, take a few moments. And so I would like to lead us in prayer and then... We're going to participate um, in these elements. I will let you participate in your home. Our Father in heaven, as we've considered this idea of not murdering, we've realized by the words of Jesus that we can stumble in the area of anger. And it's hard to know exactly where, how, or when do we maybe violate that commandment by the words of Jesus. Help us to know that. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, put your finger on a situation a name whatever it might be that we might that it might be brought to light that we might in the moment of honest asking of forgiveness by you release that person release that situation and find ourselves released from it lord as we come to the table and we remember what this caused or cost jesus on our behalf that he only died for our sin not his own That he only died that we might be forgiven and made right with you, holy God. Might we also consider doing the same for others, releasing them to you, asking forgiveness, making things right. By your spirit, guide us through that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I thank you for joining us today. And uh, in the next few moments, I invite you to participate in the elements that you have in your home. And then may God bless you. If you want to join us for anything in person, that opportunity is there. I know that for some, that's still not feasible, and that's okay. God bless you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for financially standing with the life of our church. And I really pray that you're having a great summer and that you enjoy the next few weeks that we have. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship sermon podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Sardis Fellowship Church, check out sardisfellowship.com.